What a joy it is to see you all this morning. Uh, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, that is our prayer, that is our plea this morning that you would keep us. Help us, Father God, to, to praise you and to know, Lord, that your love for us is so strong. And even as we gather here this morning, there is someone who believes that going back would be more beneficial than pressing forward. Lord, there's someone this morning who Satan has been doing a job on all week, who, who wants to give up and who believes that the, the, the taste of sin is sweeter than your salvation. And I pray, Father God, for, for us all, Lord, that you would remind us, Lord, that we are a, a new creation and that old things are, are passed away and all things have become new. Remind us, Father God, of the joy that is, is found in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to press toward that, that high calling, Lord, that, that high mark, Lord, and to, to not look back, Father God. Thank you for a gospel that changes us, Lord. And even this morning, Lord, may you remind us that we are not where we used to be, Father. Thank you that I'm not where I used to be, Lord. And while we may not be where we want to be or where other people expect us to be, Father God, we have been changed. And we will continue to be changed to look like your son, Jesus Christ. And even as we gather, Father God, there are some who have just been suffering this week, Father God. There are some, Lord, who are in the, the valley of despair, Lord. There are some who are crying out to you saying, Lord, how, how long must I suffer? Oh, Father God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be a balm to our souls and, and remind us of your goodness, Lord. Remind us that the suffering is a must but that you would never leave us nor forsake us. That it is in suffering, Lord, that it is in, in pain, Father God, that you, you often speak to us and that you conform us into the image of your son. So, Father God, I pray that you, Lord, would allow your presence to meet us in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. Pray for this nation. Pray for our families. We pray for other churches. We pray that the gospel will be preached in Newburgh this morning. And wherever people gather, Lord, let your word go forth. Give us hope, God. And remind us of the hope that we already have in you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Good morning. Uh, William Shakespeare once poetically and powerfully poemed these words. Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, and new sorrows strike heaven on the face. 
And all of us at some point in life will experience the, the type of sorrow that seems to strike heaven on the face, whether it's through the, the loss of a loved one, working for a narcissistic manager, living unwantedly single, struggling through difficult relationships, living in constant financial hardship, grappling with our own shortcomings and failures. Wherever, wherever it is, we all will be able to identify with a, a new widow's cry. We all will be able to identify with the howling of orphans. And some of us may be tempted to conclude that life is tragedy. That life offers uh, no true joy and, and no true hope. That, that all life is 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 pain and, and suffering and that there is, is, is no hope for us in the midst of it. And, and I just want to point us this morning to, uh, to Jesus. I want us to remind us that in the midst of our suffering, in the, the midst of the widow's cry, in the midst of the, the orphan's howl, that, that Jesus can give us peace. Jesus said in John 10 and 10 that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But he says, but I have come to give you life more abundantly. In John 16 and 33, he reminds us that in this world there will be tribulations, but he calls us to, to take heart. He, he tells us that we can have peace. Why? Because he says, because I have overcome the world. And that begs the question, what is the proof that Jesus has overcome the world? The answer to that question is simple. Jesus proved that he overcame the world ultimately through his resurrection by defeating death. And that's what we want to turn our attention to and, and focus on this morning. If you can stand to your feet with your Bibles in your hand or your smartphones or, or simply look at the screen. But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 12. And this is going to be the 1 through 19, excuse me. This is going to be the beginning of a new series entitled Hope of Resurrection. Hope of Resurrection. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 1 through 19. To those who are visiting with us today, we uh, once again want to extend a warm welcome to you. We're so glad that you chose to come and to to fellowship, to hang out, to kick it with uh, Forest Baptist Church. And what our eyes are about to behold is the very word of God. And uh, we are blessed to have it, blessed to be able to read it, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by man. Let's read, starting at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to twelve. Verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
For I am the least of the apostle, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Maybe seated. Again, we want to tag this text, Hope of the Resurrection. And I know that the moment that I, I said that we are starting a, a four-part series on the resurrection, that maybe a part of our hearts or a part of your heart uh, kind of uh, thought, uh, why do we need a sermon on the resurrection? Hasn't Easter passed? What does this have to do with everyday life? And the truth of the matter is, is that we we often trivialize the resurrection. We often have a temptation to simply minimize it and to, to treat it as if it is some side thing. But Paul does not do that here in 1 Corinthians. Paul treats the resurrection with with great respect and with great care because the resurrection is of extreme value. It is extremely important. We see that he gives 58 verses to this theme of resurrection as he is dealing with the church of Corinth. He doesn't just pass by it, but he, he meditates on it and he, he ponders in it. Because the church of Corinth was both trivializing the resurrection as well as changing its message. And they were changing its message because the world in which they lived, the culture in which they lived, did not believe in the resurrection of the body in the same way that Christians at that time believed and Christians today believed. Corinth believed in what we kind of hear today, some young people call YOLO. The idea that you only live once. Y-O-L-O. And some Christians were living that way. Um, other Christians began to believe that, yes, there, uh, there was life after death, but essentially, uh, once you uh, died, you became a ghost. You didn't have a, a body of substance, and you just kind of wandered around. Jews at Corinth when they heard resurrection, they were tempted to just believe in the resurrection at, uh, at, the, at the end of one's life. But they did not believe that someone uh, before the, the end of the world could be resurrected from the dead. So they were tempted to even reject 
a physical resurrection of Jesus. Well, Paul wants to show us today that the resurrection of Jesus is not something that we can trivialize. And it's not a message that we can toy with or change. It is a message that we must keep. And by trivialize, what I mean is uh, we have to see the, the resurrection of Jesus as an essential part of the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is a gospel of hope. It's a gospel of resurrection. We cannot see the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus as kind of the the fundamentals of Christianity, as the ABCs of Christianity, as Tim Keller says. No, we must see the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the A through Z of Christianity. It is the sum total of Christianity. We don't move past the gospel. Every doctrine that we believe and that we hold on to must go through the resurrection of Jesus. So I I want us to fight the temptation to trivialize and to say this is an Easter morning service. No, this is an everyday sermon. This is a sermon we need to preach to ourselves every day and we need to hold on to. And some of us in here today, we we are waning in hope and we struggle to hope in the future. We struggle to believe that God is able to do exceedingly above and beyond anything we can ask or think. We struggle to believe that our God is greater because we minimize the message of Christ conquering death. And Paul is writing to church at Corinth And he's like, yo, the reason there's so much chaos in this church is is for three reasons. Number one, you all lack humility. You're you're walking around, you have all of this knowledge, but but the knowledge has not seeped into your heart and no one can tell you anything. (laughs) Second, he says you lack love. Love is other person focused. You all are very self-focused, very self-interested. So in 1 Corinthians 13, he, poem, he, he writes down and pens some, some of the most poetic words in Scripture, and, and he jilts them out of this self-interest by saying true love looks like this. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, he builds his longest argument, and he tells the church at Corinth what you need most is to see this resurrected Jesus, your resurrected king. And this chaos that is going on in the church, this hopelessness that is going on in Corinth can find healing. Without a resurrection, without believing in resurrection, there are some major implications. If we trivialize it, there are some some things that, that are major that can really affect us. And that's what Paul shows us in verses 12 through 19 really quick. We're going to go to 12 through 19, then we'll deal with 1 through 11. He points out that if there is no resurrection, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, there's uh, six implications. Verse 14, he says, number one, our preaching is in vain. He says, when we come to you and we preach, we preach for no reason. Second, he says, our faith is in vain. Verse 15, putting your faith in Jesus is in vain if he's still dead. Third, he says, we, preachers, he says, we are misrepresenting God. It's found in verse 15. In other words, he says, we're con men. We're selling you false hopes. We're selling you false dreams. Look at this, number four. Fourth, in, in verse 17, he says, we are still in our sins. If Christ has not been resurrected from the dead, we are still in our sins. There has been no propitiation. God's wrath has not been satisfied. 
We are enemies of God. You lose the resurrection. You lose intimacy with God. You lose forgiveness. Fifth, he says, those who died in Christ are dead for good. So that loved one who was on the battlefield for the Lord for for so many years, or that that one who who helped bring hope to so many, when they died, that's it, they're dead. And their lives is over and they they will never be resurrected again. Then six, he shows us that if there is no resurrection, then we, Christians, we should be pitied. We should be sorrowful. We should be a people without hope. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is showing them the essential of the message of the resurrection. And he's saying, if Jesus is dead, then Christianity is dead. And if Jesus is alive, then Christianity is alive. And if Jesus is dead, we, as believers, we emotionally, spiritually, physically, psychologically, we are dead. We have no hope because God has not conquered death. And God cannot conquer the things that we go through every single day. Jesus goes, uh, Paul goes on. And what he's, his essential message in his passage is, is this. He's telling us to hold on to the resurrection and live with hope. He's writing to the church of Corinth and he's stressing the importance of holding on to this message. Verses 1 through 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I've preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Paul is saying you need to hold fast to this message. The message that I came preaching to you some five, six years ago. When there was no church at Corinth, you need to hold fast. He says the message in which you are standing, you need to stand on it. The message that is changing you, you need to hold on to it. Persevere in the resurrection. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. That's how he closes the, the chapter. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that you that." In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Why is our labor not in vain? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. And because we know that one day we too will be resurrected. Paul is saying, hold on to this message. Don't let it go. This was Paul's primary message when he preached. We see throughout the book of Acts, after Paul was converted and his name was changed from Saul to Paul, when he preached the gospel, it was a gospel that leaned heavily on the resurrection. That's what he says. He said, this is a message of first importance. (laughs) He said, this is an urgent matter. This isn't a side issue. This isn't a a grocery list. (laughs) This isn't a workout regiment. 
This, this isn't an end table in your living room. This is the couch. <laughs> this is the living room piece. This is the center of our hope. Some people say, well, isn't Paul contradicting himself? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, he said to the church at Corinth, he said, well, I came and I knew nothing amongst you but Christ and him crucified. And now he's coming back and he's preaching about the importance of the resurrection. Isn't there contradiction? No, it's not contradiction. It's one in the same message. Christ crucified, when he says that, is a summary of the whole gospel. And that's what Paul is pointing out here in the text. Look at verse number three. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This is the message of Christ and him crucified. It doesn't end with his crucifixion. It continues until the fact that he appeared. This is what we call the gospel, the good news. It is a pronouncement of hope. And there's four essential elements that we see in this text that make up the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first is this, Christ died for our sins. As a result, now we have been made right with God. We've been justified by faith. Second, that he was buried. Third, that he was raised on the third day. And fourth, that he appeared. This is the essential message of Christianity. This is what we live out of. This is what gives us hope. This is our dream. This is our vision. This is what motivates us and keeps us going. Some people want to change the message. In fact, the modern man is okay with the message up to an extent. The average person on the street, they're, they're cool with this message up to, to a certain extent. They're cool with the fact that Christ died. And they may even give you that maybe he in some way died for our sins. They're cool with the fact that he was buried. But to say that he was raised, from the dead, that is where the problem comes in. Because it's too supernatural. It's too big. But we, Christians, we must believe it. And we must not make it mystical or try to explain it away or get shy when we're telling someone and preaching to someone about who Jesus is. And kind of tuck our head and, and whisper the part that he's still alive. There's three things that we want to see in this text if we're going to hope in the res- resurrection of Jesus. We can find confidence in three, in three things that Paul points out. That we can ground the resurrection of Jesus Christ in three evidences. Number one is the evidence of scripture. The testimony of scripture. Paul grounds his argument in the fact that the scriptures prophesy about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And when he speaks of the scripture here, he's namely speaking of the the Old Testament. Okay? He's saying that the scriptures, everything that he says, he says, look, look at verse number three. For I delivered to you a first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Why does he keep coming back to the fact that it's in accordance with the scriptures? Because he wants people to know this isn't something that he's just made up and that others have just made up. 
that this promise of resurrection is a promise that has been allowed for a very long time. And we ought to think of the message of the resurrection and we ought to look at the scriptures with absolute amazement. And we ought to see how amazing it is that the scriptures testified of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus came. In Psalm chapter 22, go home and read it. It's a, what's called a messianic psalm. All of the Old Testament, it, it points to Jesus. And in that psalm, there's a, a, a prophecy uh, about the, the Messiah that would come and, and how he would suffer and he will be treated horribly. And it says that not even his legs when he died, not a bone in his body would be broken. And we know that there was a, a fulfillment of the prophecy. Uh, the prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus was on the cross. And not a bone in his body was broken. Often, when a person was crucified under Roman crucifixion, they would allow uh, the, the, the criminal to be to suffer. They would torture him. They would put him on a cross. And, and when they got tired of seeing him struggle, they would break his legs. They would break his bones so that, they, that the person would no longer be able to push up from the cross. And in essence, they would be unable to fight their death. Psalm 22 gives us a, a picture of how Jesus would suffer on the cross and a promise that his bones would not be broken. 700 years before Jesus came, there was a prophecy about Jesus' crucifixion by a man by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah, with vivid imagery, gives us a picture of the coming Messiah and what he would suffer. In Isaiah chapter 52, he talks about this coming Messiah. He says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of men. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one form whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him strict and smitten by God and afflicted because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed. Crucifixion was oppression. Our sin oppressed him, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that was before his shears in silence, so he opened not his mouth. 700 years before Jesus came and died, we see these prophecies, over 300 of them in the Old Testament. Paul says we can have confidence in the resurrection because of what Scripture has to say about the cross, about the resurrection. Job chapter 19, verse 25 to 26, Job says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. <laughs> and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. This is Job, 
Job was actually the oldest book of the Bible, written uh, in the time of, of Moses. He way back then says that he knows his Redeemer lives. He had a hope for the resurrection. And not only the resurrection of his Redeemer and his Redeemer being on earth, but also for uh, the hope that he would not, his body would not rest in the grave. And that his body would be redeemed. Psalm 16, David says, and this psalm points once again to the Messiah, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. Scriptures testify of this resurrection. Jesus, our New Testament scriptures, prophesied his own resurrection. John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise again. The gospel of Matthew, he said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. John eleven twenty five 25 through 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So Paul points them to the scriptures twice. He says, as accordance to the scriptures. Why? Because he wants them to look back at the Old Testament. He wants them to read it carefully and to know that God did not just make this up, that they didn't just make this up, but this is all a part of God's plan. The resurrection is a part of God's plan. And I just want to encourage you to to listen to the scriptures and to, to not allow Satan or other people to cast shade on what we believe. To go to the scriptures with confidence, as as Pastor Nate powerfully preached last week. To have confidence in the scriptures. And to hold on to, to, with hope to the scriptures. I mean, be amazed. Be amazed that the the Bible that we have was was written over a thousand of year period on multiple continents by over 40 authors who all had different professions from being a physician to being farmers. Be amazed at the scriptures that we have. And don't allow people to to cast doubt and to say, you believe in the scriptures, you believe in the Bible, that's just written by man. It's just a political game. It's just a political point. And what I found is most people who say that They have absolutely, they have done absolutely no research. And they have hardly any historical evidence to back up what they're saying. They're just saying what they heard someone else say or what they did on a quick Google search. And and we know if it's on Google, we can believe it, right? No, there's a great defense of the scripture. and, And we know that the scriptures have been kept extremely well, better than any other historical document that exists. In fact, in, August, in July and August, we're uh, going to have a series here at Forest Baptist Church, and, and the uh, name of the series is what Christians hope no one will ask. We're going to deal with tough questions that, uh, that some of us, we, we just hope that someone won't bring up because we think that if, if someone asks it, we'll be trumped or, or we won't know the answer to it. And we have a guy by the name of Timothy Paul Jones who's a, 
a New Testament scholar, a lovely brother, um, who's just completed a book uh, on this subject of why we can trust the Bible. He's going to come in and he's going to to show us the the historical uh, evidence of the Bible and how well preserved it is and how we received it. Trust in the scriptures and, and know that the scriptures point to a resurrected Savior. Second, Paul says that we can have confidence in the resurrection because of the historical testimonies. The historical testimonies. In essence, because there's eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. And this is, this is an important argument. This is a, a wonderful argument. Paul, in talking to the church at, at Corinth and telling them to hold on, he then moves from the scriptures and says this, the middle of verse 4, that he was raised on the third day, and according to scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul says, listen, you all can have confidence in the resurrection because Jesus didn't just uh, be raised from the dead, but rise from the dead, but, but Jesus appeared to people. And he gives them an order. He says, number one, he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Okay? Uh, early on in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions Peter. Peter was well uh, known in the church of Corinth. He was many of them, their favorite preacher. They were arguing who was a better preacher, Paul or, or Cephas, right? He's saying Peter experienced this resurrected Jesus, Luke 24 and 24. Then he says, then to the 12, speaking of the, the 12 disciples, uh, probably uh, replacing uh, uh, Mathis there with uh, Judas. Then in verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most whom are still alive, some who've fallen asleep. So look, he says there's 500 people who saw Jesus after he died on the cross. And then he says most of them are still living. Now this is a historical document, the book of Corinth. This was in, in mass production. It was going around from city to city and, and town to town. He says 500 people saw him, and he said most of them are still living. So what makes most? What constitutes as most? If it's 500, at least 251 of them were still alive. And you know people, you know us, we are a critical people, aren't we? We are a fact-checking, pe- fact-checking people. Back then, they didn't have Google. They didn't have Yahoo, so they, they wasn't, you know, Googling it to see who all was alive. They probably said, yeah, let me go and check with some folk, with Nunu and Bebe and them, and see if they know any of these people, right? So he's saying, you can go check it out. Go talk to some of them. They saw them. If an incident happened here in Newburgh, and 251 people saw it, and each of those people had the same testimony. And not only did they have the same testimony, but their lives after seeing this incident was radically changed. And not only was their lives radically changed after this incident, but now they are going all over the world and telling people about this incident. If this happened to 251 people, we would believe them. We will believe because it's hard to get two people to corroborate on the same story, let alone 251. 
And that's what happened. And that's how the message of Christianity spread. Through eyewitness accounts, through people who touched them, through Thomas who, who put his hands in his wounds, through Mary who, who tried to hold on to him, uh, outside of the tomb when he revealed himself to him. Through people who, once he came back and spent 40 days going through the Old Testament, showing them how the Old Testament related to him, who now had a radically different interpretation of scriptures in light of Christ. These people saw him, and that's how Christianity has spread over all of the world. And it's thriving in some hard places. It's because of the eyewitness testimonies of Christians. And we can have confidence in the scriptures because of that. I want to remember... That if these people were lying back then, that a lot was at stake. Most of them were Jews, and, and to leave the, the Jewish faith, uh, 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 Judaism, in order to be a Christian would have meant uh, isolation from their family. Christianity was seen as a cult for, for the first 300 years um, after its inception. Nero and, 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 and Tacticus and others were, were skinning Christians alive. They were making human torches out of them. They were throwing them to lions. Why in the world would someone hold on to a story that was not true? Why in the world would they risk their family and change the way they worshipped, giving up many Jewish laws and rituals if they had not experienced the resurrected Jesus? Even secular writers confirmed that something was strange about these Christians. They were baffled at the fact that they had a unique message. A guy by the name of Pliny the Younger, who lived in about A.D. 62 to A.D. 113. He was a lawyer. He was an author. He was a magistrate in ancient Rome. This is a secular account. Listen to what he had to say. I have never been present at an examination of Christians. Consequently, I do not know the nature of the extent of their punishments usually met it out to them, nor the ground for starting an investigation on how far it should be pressed. They also declared the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day, Sunday in remembrance of Jesus' resurrection, to chant verses alternatively amongst themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God. as if to a God. Another uh, Roman historian um, who works for the Imperial House of Rome and is on, on uh, secular record said this, and in his biography, I'm sorry, he said these words, speaking of, of Christians, he says, punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men giving to a new and mischievous superstition, the resurrection. Christians were being punished and beat treated horribly because they refused to recant about the resurrection. And there's not a debate about whether or not Jesus' tomb was empty. That's not the debate. No true historian, no true intellectual who has done the homework will say that there's not an empty tomb. There's an empty tomb. Uh, we, uh, we can be taken to Abraham's tomb. We can be uh, taken to Muhammad's tomb. Uh, we could be taken to Buddha's tomb. Uh, we cannot be taken to, to, to Jesus' tomb. Why? Because the tomb is empty. 
And Christians did not make a shrine out of it and visit it because his body was not there. The question is not whether or not the tomb is empty. The question, or not is why, the question is why was Jesus' tomb empty? Some say the disciples uh, simply took the body. Some say that Jesus wasn't as badly hurt as, as we think he was. And somehow he uh, got this hundred pound rock out of the way in his own strength and did some miraculous stuff, showed himself to people and then disappeared and went off the grid like Tupac. Some of y'all still think Tupac's alive. Don't do that to me. He's still alive. Right? Conspiracy theorist. No, we Christians, we know what happened. Jesus died. And he rose. And he ascended to heaven. And he's sitting on the right hand side of the Father. With all power in his hand. And he's coming back again for his bride, for the church. I want to encourage you today to center your life on this, to fight the temptation, to try to explain it away, to say that maybe Jesus' appearance was a hallucination. By a lot of people, they all hallucinated. Hallucinations normally happen in private, and they may happen with the help of some type of intoxication. (laughs) Very seldom. (laughs) In fact, in searching, I I really couldn't find a a a number of hundreds of people hallucinating and sticking to a story in public. Ground your life on the resurrection of Jesus. Celebrate his resurrection every day of your life. Use the the hope of the resurrection. Use the the, the, the thoughts and the the truth that that God is able to do all things to, to fight depression. To fight hopelessness because of arthritis, to fight your personal sin, to fight relational failures, relationships that fail. Use the resurrection of Jesus as your ultimate motivation because you know that Jesus came and kicked death's butt. Third, Paul says our confidence is not only in the scripture and it's not only and eyewitness testimonies or historical testimonies are our confidence is in personal transformation. Then we'll close with this point. It's in personal transformation. This is absolutely amazing what the Apostle, Apostle, what the Apostle Paul does here. Verse 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace of God, by the grace, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, So we preach, and so you believed. Paul says, believe in the Scripture. 
He says, go interview these people, find these people, hear their, their personal accounts. But lastly, he says, look at my transformation. Look at my transformation. He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am here preaching to you because of God's undeserved kindness to sinners. The Apostle Paul, if, you're, if you don't know his story, if you don't know his testimony, in the Bible there's a book called Acts. And in Acts chapter 8 and 9, we read that his name back then was Saul. And Saul was a very religious man. And religion, a worthless, pointless religion isn't a good thing. This isn't a good thing about him. So much to the point that his religion was without love. He persecuted and had Christians killed. In Acts chapter 8, one of God's choice servants, a man by the name of Stephen, he is murdered. And the Bible says that Paul was raging against the church and he was there when Stephen was murdered. And he had Christians dragged off and, and killed. But then in chapter, Acts chapter 9, Paul on the road to Damascus, he is, is, is on his way to continue to persecute Christians. And the Bible says that he meets Jesus. Jesus knocked him off his high horse, literally, and showed himself to him. And he says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Why do you go against my people, my body? And Paul's name was eventually changed from Saul to Paul. And instead of being against Christ, he was now for Christ. And he's saying, look, if y'all don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe that God can take dead things and make them alive, if you don't believe that he's in the business of transformation, please look at me. Go back to my hood. Talk to my people. They'll tell you I was crazy. I was crazy about the things I was crazy about, but now I'm crazy about Jesus, so crazy about him that it's the only thing that I preach to you. It's all that I have for you. That Jesus is able to transform sinners in whom I am most. He lets the church of Corinth know that he's the least of all apostles. He says, I was untimely born. What is he talking about? He says the rest of the apostles, they got to spend time with Jesus doing his ministry for three and a half years. They, they were there when Jesus was raised from the dead and, and he came and showed up while they were in hiding and fear. He says, I didn't get to see Jesus in that way during his earthly ministry and right after his resurrection. I saw Jesus after he had ascended into heaven. My birth was untimely. I'm the least of all apostles. I don't believe that this is a false humility. No, I believe that this is Paul believing the gospel. See, the gospel does two things. The first thing it does is it breaks us. It brings us to the point of us no longer being self-righteous or living in self-righteousness, believing that we're the best or that we're the one that has it right. No, the gospel allows us to be most critical of our own selves because we know our own sin and our own proclivity. That's why uh, he says to Timothy, I am the chief of all sinners. He says to his pupil, to his disciple, to the one that he's mentoring, I'm the biggest sinner I know. He's able to be broken, but he's also able to be bold. That's what the gospel does. It gives us a balance of brokenness and boldness. He says, while I'm broken, while I'm a sinner, while I'm messed up, while I want to do good, but evil is ever beside me, Romans chapter 7, I 
At the same time, I work harder than everybody else. In other words, he's doing kind of that humble boast. I really love Jesus, and it shows. But it shows because of his grace, not because of my own strength, not because of my own intellect, not because of my own doing, but because the grace of God has transformed me. I come to encourage you today, dear Christian, allow the resurrection of Jesus, allow the Holy Spirit to continue to transform you. And don't look for transformation in your own strength, but look for transformation through Christ and his strength, through the resurrecting power of God. And allow that to be what you lean on when you tell other people about Jesus. You know, it is the hardest thing in the world. It really is to change ourselves. It's doggone near impossible. And some of us, the reason we have so many problems that we have is because we're constantly trying to change someone else. You can't change you. Don't try to spend all your energy changing someone else. In fact, I read about how each year over 6,000 people are treated for heart disease. And research shows that out of those 6,000 people, once they uh, are, are treated for heart disease and, and their doctors give them feedback, and they, the feedback normally is you need to change the way you eat, you need to stop smoking, stop drinking, minimize stressors. Did you know that a year later the study showed that only 10% of people had been able to make those changes? People with heart disease are in a dire situation. It's literally change or die. And 90% of the people who are put in that situation within a year have already given up on changing. Why do you say that? I say that to that person here who, is, who believes that to give your life to Jesus, you have to change yourself. That before you give your life to Jesus, you have to muster up your own strength. You have to do so many works before he will accept you. I want you to know that that is an abomination to God, that God knows that you cannot change yourself. And the good news is the gospel says not come to Jesus so that you can be changed, but come to Jesus so that you can be forgiven. And if you trust God, enough to be forgiven, and, if, and as you trust God more and more, that he will give you the power to change. He will take you from a Saul to a Paul because you've put your faith and trust in his son and not in your own doing. That's the good news. That's the difference between good news and good advice. Good advice says, this is what you should do, go do it. And if you're real with yourself, you know it don't work like that. How many New Year's resolutions have have already failed? Like I'm 54 years old. I have 42 New Year's resolutions. All of them have failed. No, good news is come receive the love of God. Be forgiven. Change the way you think about your sin. Know that it's wrong. Turn from it and turn and trust Jesus. Turn from loving it and thinking that it's okay from rationalizing and turn to trust Jesus. And know that he will forgive you and he will empower you. He will embolden you. The gospel both breaks us 
and makes us bold. But the breaking is not a breaking that makes us guilty. It's not a breaking that makes us feel condemned. It's a breaking that says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a good breaking. I want to invite you, if you're here today, to come to know this Jesus. I want to invite you, if you're here today, to to rest in this resurrection, to have confidence in his resurrection and your future resurrection from the dead because the scriptures say so, because of historical testimonies, because of personal transformation. If you're not a Christian, I pray that you have seen the personal transformation of a person who claims to be a Christian. I pray that that's why you're here today, because you know someone who is not living a perfect life, but who is living a life of some victory. And if your testimony is, you know what, I don't know anyone like that, and that's why I'm not a Christian, I want to invite you not to follow Christians, but to follow Christ. Because he and he alone is the only one without sin. Someone here needs to know, man, God loves you. And he doesn't love you because of you. He loves you in spite of you. Two years ago, I was coming out of a store and there was just a lot of heaviness on my heart. And I was just bewildered that day. I was just feeling so hopeless. And this woman, out of nowhere, she, we walk past each other and I give it a smile. And I don't think from the outside she could tell I'm getting back in my car, and she, she runs up to me, and she says, sir, I say, yes. She says, I just want you to know that God loves you and that he is pleased with you. And she began to tell me that she was a Christian and that just in our passing, she could tell that I put my faith and trust in Christ, but the Lord wanted her to come back to say, God loves you. And I just come to tell you, dear Christian, no matter who you are, No matter the the widow's howl or the child's cry or, or the new pain that you have that seems to be smacking God in the face, that you serve a God who loves you and who is pleased with you if you have put your faith in Christ. That his love for you is not because of you, but it's because you have placed your faith in Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come to know this love, a unending love, a unfathomable love, an empowering love, a scandalous love. Christians, we live out of this love. We live out of this hope. We live out of the resurrection. And as we gather together this week in community groups, let us not gather together as a hopeless people, but as a hopeful people, knowing that God has conquered death. And that if he conquered death, he can conquer cancer. That if he conquered death, he can conquer your hopelessness. And he can conquer your depression. And until he does, we're going to hold on to our resurrected king. Let's pray.